Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, a week ago I flew into New Orleans. I was on a plane, thank goodness. Made it much easier. Kinda. Although, yeah, no, it would have. I, I wouldn't have given myself any better service if I was just flying by myself. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because when I landed, when the plane landed, okay, um, I was told uh, by the person who met me at the airport, uh, if you need to uh, visit the uh, restroom or get anything to any beverages, you better do it now because we're going to be stuck here for a while. That's a weird thing to hear when you arrive at an airport. I said, what's, what's the deal? He said, well... They just had a 2,500-gallon gasoline spill on the freeway leading to the airport, right near the airport, and everything slammed. Everything, Nothing's moving. We're going to be here for a while. Okay, well, I didn't need to do anything, so we just went to the car and got in this, this uh, line of cars coming out of the parking garage, merging from different directions to try to get to the exit and get out of the airport and get into the traffic jam leading from the airport down the main routes to the city of New Orleans because the freeway was blocked. I tell you this story only because I sat in the car, not moving, you know, for 10 minutes chatting with the driver. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, something eerie, something weird, something I didn't expect to experience in this situation. Nobody was honking. One, I think one driver honked in the entire time, in the entire half hour that we were stuck inching our way out of the airport. So when people ask me sometimes, as they do, why, what, what, what's the thing with New Orleans? Why do you like New Orleans so much? Well, it's the food, and it's the architecture, and it's the music, and it's the people. But mainly, it's the not honking in the airport. Hello, welcome to the show. And tell him 
from Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless. I'm Harry Scherer, welcoming you to a, a, a rather telephonically themed, if accidentally and quixotically, edition of the show. More about that in a moment, but uh, first, news of our friend the Adam. Getting safer all the time. This uh, from the Register Tech publication in Britain. While staying at a Marriott hotel in San Antonio, Texas, U.S. government staffers left nuclear material that they recovered from a nonprofit research lab in a redded SUV overnight. Guess what happened the following morning? Yeah, it was all. No, it wasn't. The security experts at the Department of Energy's Idaho National Laboratory found their Ford Expedition had been broken into. The plutonium and cesium used to calibrate radiation detectors that was kind of missing. A year and a half after the theft, which occurred in March of last year, the carcinogenic material, which could be used to create a dirty bomb, if there was a sufficient amount of it, is still missing. The U.S. government has an acronym for that particular kind of thing, MUF, material unaccounted for. There's something like six tons of MUF out there. I don't know where out there is. People keep talking about it. I'm going to find it one of these days. That's a figure from the Center for Public Integrity. Most of it is uh, believed to be trapped in nuclear processing material, machinery, or the result of inaccurate record keeping. Well, good on you for inaccurate record keeping on the plutonium and the cesium. Isn't that, isn't that so very human? The uh, problem was disclosed this week by the uh, Center for Public Integrity, which pieced together details about the theft through a Freedom of Information Act request. Asked for comment, a spokesperson for the National Nuclear Security Administration, part of the Department of Energy, deferred to the DOE press office, which didn't respond, nor did the Idaho National Laboratory. Uh, Although a spokesperson for the Idaho lab said, the missing material isn't enough to create a bomb. And that you can take to the bank. The bomb bank. The equipment was stored in two locked, unmarked Pelican cases. A um, associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and coordinator of the Nuclear Proliferation Prevention Project told the register the missing materials would not be enough for terrorists to create a proper nuclear bomb. The cesium can't be used. You could seize. Oh, no. And it's highly unlikely not enough plutonium was made to create, uh, taken to make a military-grade weapon. uh, Cesium cannot be used to make a weapon. Plutonium requires several kilograms, although the amount missing in this case is not recorded. It's probably no more than a few grams, a thousandth of the amount necessary for a bomb. Both items could be used to build a dirty bomb, however. This according to that Professor Alan Cooperman in Texas. A dirty bomb is designed to disperse radioactive material for the purpose of mass contamination rather than release a massive amount of energy. Cesium-137 is quite radioactive, plutonium only somewhat, but could become a health threat, you know, if dispersed and inhaled, is all. Let's all not inhale for a little while. What do you think? Because this, this assumes the thieves know what they've stolen, how it can be used, and how to handle it. 
I think we can all agree, says Cooperman, the professor at UT, that government officials should not be leaving this stuff in hotel parking lots. That's correct. Take it with you to the uh, fast food. Because they got eyes on every... But the good news li- this week, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of the our friend the Adam, is everything seems to be going swimmingly at Fook in Japan. Why do I say that? The ice wall is not really working that well. The the radiated irradiated water is still piling up in more and more tanks. You're welcome. I said because the operator of the Fook plant this week resumed TV commercials. So things have got to be good. A retail arm of TEPCO said it was placing commercials on TV, radio, and trains because competition among energy companies is intensifying. Well, Milton Friedman, Friedman could have told you that. When competition intensifies... In the wake of a nuclear disaster, buy TV ads. Activists are angered that TEPCO is a spending on advertising while it remains on the hook for enormous costs stemming from the little thing, including cleanup, decommissioning, and compensation payments. But a uh, spokeswoman for TEPCO said the campaign was necessary to help Fook. Our achievement of sales targets will allow us to fulfill our responsibilities for Fukushima, said the spokesperson. The commercials, you'll be glad to hear, feature... A rabbit mascot. A rabbit mascot called Tepcon. You know, for Tepco. I guess Khan doesn't mean the same thing in Japanese. He grabs ear gra- he shares ear grabbing information about the company's electricity and gas packages. The commercials went off the air in the wake of the disaster a few years back. Tepcon's back. And he's cuter than ever. The Department of Energy, back in this country, wants to start stabilizing a tunnel at the Hanford nuclear place where we built all our big bombs, and now it's dirty as heck. The dirt is dirty. That's how dirty it is. They want to stabilize this tunnel that's filled with highly radioactive waste. At risk of collapse is the tunnel without waiting for more public comments is what the Energy Department wants to do. Work needs to start in a few weeks, they say, to finish before winter. Yeah, winter in Washington. Well, I guess maybe it snows there. Mm -hmm. The OE has asked the Washington Department of Ecology, which regulates the nuclear reservation, if it could proceed with filling the storage tunnel, it's nearly 1,700 feet long, with concrete-like grout next month. I don't know why they didn't get grout-like grout, but there you go. Ecology officials will review the request. The older of the two waste storage tunnels... At the processing plant, partially collapsed, you may remember, May of last year, causing thousands of workers across the Hanford site to take cover. The concern was that radioactive contamination could have spread from the open tunnel roof, like into the air. No radioactive material is believed to have escaped, but DOE is trying to prevent further collapses of the aging tunnels. But we're all aging. We don't all collapse yet. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, the long tail of a nuclear disaster is revealed by the MIT Technology Review. You know that during the 1950s, when everything was good, the U.S., the Soviet Union, few other countries tested thermonuclear weapons right here in the Earth's atmosphere, where we breathe. They released vast amounts of radioactive material into the air, triggering fears that the nuclear reactions could ignite deuterium in the oceans, destroying the planet in a catastrophic accidental fireball. That might have been a good idea. No, atmospheric tests ended in 1980. 
The process has left a long-lasting nuclear signature on the planet. Yes, nukes give autographs. One of the most obvious is our old friend, cesium-137. That's a byproduct of the fission of uranium. It was swept around the world and f- around the world and found its way into the food supply in trace quantities. In 2001, the French pharmacologist Philippe Hubert discovered he could use this signature to date wines without opening the bottles. This became a useful weapon in the fight against wine fraud. But is it possible, asks the MIT Review, to see the effects of the Fouke disaster in California wines produced that time, at that time? This week we got an answer. Study carried out by Hubert and a couple of colleagues says, We came across a series of Californian wines, Cabernet Sauvignon, in January of last year, from vintage 2009 to 2012. The set of wine provided the perfect test. The Fouke disaster occurred March 2011. Any wine made before that date should be free of the effects. Any dating from afterward would show them. Team opened the wine and reduced it to ash by evaporation. Evolves heating the wine to 100 degrees Celsius for one hour and then increasing the temperature to 500 degrees Celsius for eight hours. That's not that drinkable, I'm guessing. In this way, the ashes were then placed in a gamma-ray detector to look for signs of cesium-137. Using this method, Hubert and his colleagues... Ah, the French... Yes, indeed. Thank you, Mr. Wells. ...found measurable amounts of cesium-137 above background levels in the wine produced after 2011. It seems there's an increase in activity in 2011 by a factor of two, concludes the French team. The result does show the long tail of nuclear disasters, and maybe you don't want to be getting that uh, California champagne for a while. Orson? Ah, the French champagne... It's always been celebrated for its excellence. And its lack of cesium. Clean, cheap, too safe to meter. Our friend the Adam. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Facebook has done it again. It suspended another analytics firm, Crimson Hexagon. I know where the Crimson is uh, from. It's a, uh, founded by a guy from Harvard. Harvard. It suspended the social media analytics firm from accessing user data while it investigates potential violations of its policy that bars surveillance. I bet you didn't know Facebook had a policy that barred surveillance. More about that in a moment. Crimson Hexagon has an impressive list of blue-chip clients, according to The Guardian. It claims to have collected more than one trillion social media posts from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and other sources. It uses artificial intelligence, the best kind, and image analysis to monitor social media and provide its clients with insights. What kind of insights? What the public thinks of their brands. Those public opinion surveys, they're so... Well, they were. But this, this, ladies and gentlemen, the company has its access to Facebook and Instagram shut off after the Wall Street Journal asked Facebook about Crimson Hexagon's contracts with the U.S. government, a Russian nonprofit organization with ties to the Kremlin, a lot of ties to the Kremlin, and the Turkish government. Why, this sounds like Michael Flynn's resume. Facebook says, We don't allow developers to build surveillance tools using information from Facebook or Instagram. We take these allegations seriously. 
and we denounce the alligators. No, and we have suspended these apps while we investigate. Based on our investigation to date, the spokesman continued, Crimson Hexagon did not obtain any Facebook or Instagram information inappropriately. Unquote. But did they use it inappropriately? Of course, is the question that was not answered by that statement. Facebook introduced a policy banning developers from using public user data for surveillance. March of last year, following revelations that police departments were using social media monitoring via a company called Geofedia. That sounds like a sitcom name, doesn't it? Geofedia. Cue the laugh track. To track protesters. Why not just go back to COINTELPRO and be done with it? COINTELPRO sounds like a serious thing, not Geofedia. At the time, Facebook, at that March of 2017, Facebook did not define what it meant by surveillance. Well, we're going to get around to it by now. No, more than a year on, the company is still unable to explain what it means by surveillance. Well, it doesn't even know what it means by Holocaust denial. I don't know. Facebook does not prohibit third parties like Crimson Hexagon from providing data to government agencies for market research purposes, like the TSA wanted to find out how people perceive the organization. (laughs) You could just ask, but no, because that was... Facebook was unable to clarify whether it would count as surveillance if an authoritarian state leader's marketing wing sought to find out how his or her brand was perceived by dissidents. The company was also able, unable to confirm whether there were any conditions under which a private company using a third party like Crimson Hexagon to carry out market research would count as surveillance. They'll get around to it shortly after the election. Which uh, brings us around, ultimately, to uh, the subject of telephonic communication again. which uh, is itself subject to surveillance and revelation. Uh, this show will be heavy, and I, I say this almost, apolo- almost apologetically, uh, heavy on Donald Trump this week, because uh, he was the heavy this week in a, in a couple of major news stories. Um, the, the one that came out uh, on the cusp of the weekend in a, a report from the New York Times was that there is a tape recording a voicemail recording, I imagine, of a telephone conversation between Donald Trump and his then-attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen. Cohen, as you may recall, uh, is being investigated by uh, the feds in New York, not the uh, Mueller probe. Hmm, that sounds about nice on a warm summer day, a Mueller probe. Um, And it was the FBI raided his home and office, uh, Cohen's, not Mueller's, And among the thousands and millions of things, pieces of evidence that they found was this tape, this recording of this conversation between Cohen and Trump regarding this was during the campaign. He was not yet (laughs) President Trump about paying off a Playboy Playmate whose story had been bought already by the National Enquirer, whose owner is friendly with Trump. And the question was, were, was the Trump organization, of which Cohn, Cohn was a part of that time, going to pay her more money? Uh, and if so, would it be by check? And if so, would that really be reimbursement? Or would it be reimbursement, uh, that is to say, to the National Enquirer for paying her off? And then 
the material would be long to the Trump Organization, not to his friend at the National Enquirer. Anyway, that's, that phone call was made public. We don't really know how or why. It just was revealed. And um, the president denounced both the raid and Michael Cohen for recording the call. Which leads to the question, was there any other follow-up? Hello, this is Michael Cohen, lawyer and crisis counselor. I'm busy counseling my own crisis right now, so please leave a message. Don't wait for the beep. The FBI took it. Hello, Mike. Mike, are you there? Mike, remember when I used to call you Mikey back when I, I guess you liked me? What's with that, anyway? I know you're screening, so I'm just going to keep talking. You know, because it's that long commercial break on Hannity show anyway. What am I going to do? Read a damn briefing? <laughs> so, Mikey, what's the deal with the tape? Rudy says the only person who could have leaked it is you. And you know Rudy. The guy knows from leaks. And so many people are telling me, Mike, that you're sending me a message. But for the life of me, I can't figure it out. Are you threatening me with more tapes? It's the oldest trick in the book, Michael. I've used it myself a million times. Yes, yeah, sometimes it works. But listen, my friend, don't think you're the only one who was ever taping. Yeah? But look, like we used to say in the old days, nobody's got to know nothing. I know you're there, Mike. I can hear you breathing. Yeah, maybe that's my breathing. Anyway, I can tell you this. Everything's going to be fine, or was going to be fine, until Crazy Muller shifted your case back to New York. Now everybody tells me my pardon power doesn't work in New York. It's like, what is that? Some kind of union thing? Too bad Fat Tony's not around anymore, right? That would have been turned around in the South Bronx second. I can tell you that. But people have been telling me that you're talking about loyalty to your family, which is great, and your country, and who doesn't love their country except, of course, the fake news. I, I know Jim Acosta doesn't love his country. I, maybe not even his family. Who knows? But where was the other loyalty? And I know you're smart enough that I don't have to draw you a friggin' picture of myself, which, of course, I can't draw anyway, but, you know, the, you get the point. I mean, we've got history, right? That's not something you bargain away unless you want to have a, a ton of bricks hit you like you've never seen in your life. I mean, you know who I just met with in Helsinki, right? Very nice guy. Very nice to me. Said some very nice things. But he's got polonium, for God's sake. Horrible way to go. Look at the pictures of that Russian guy in London sometime. Of course, nothing like that could happen in this country, but, you know, you fly to some nice vacation in Italy or France, and you come back in a box, right? Nobody wants that. So, Mikey, Mikey, just remember all the great lawsuits we filed. I mean, you filed them, but we talked them up together, right? Sometimes I wish I could just sue some of these a-holes around here. But anyway, think about it. You know where to find me. Any weekend, I'm at one of the courses. They can connect you right up. Maybe when this is all over, I'll give you a discount membership. Okay, Hannity's back on. I'll hang up now. You don't have to take a bullet from me. Just be a good guy, like you always were back when I really did like you. Hope to God you're not recording this. All right, bye.
You're driving your car. You're walking across the square. Your mobile rings. And there's no one there. Santa Monica, home of the homeless. This is the show. Getting into a telephonic kind of thing, but now much more long-distance kind of communication. It's news of the godly. Revelations that one of the most respected U.S. cardinals allegedly sexually abused both boys and adult seminarians have raised questions about who in the Catholic Church hierarchy knew and what Pope Francis is going to do about it. This from the Associated Press. If the accusations against Cardinal Theodore McCarrick bear out, we talked about him last week, but now there's a new case reported this week involving an 11-year-old boy. The question is, will Francis revoke his title as Cardinal? Demote him to Sparrow, perhaps. Sanction him to a lifetime of penance and prayer, or even defrock him. Would you sell tickets to that, please? If That would be the expected sanction if McCarrick was a mere priest. 
Will Francis, who has already denounced a culture of cover-up in the church, take the investigation all the way to the top, where it will inevitably lead, says the AP. McCarrick's alleged sexual misdeeds with adults were reportedly brought to the Vatican's attention years ago. But, you know, the Vatican's attention span is... The matter is now on the desk of the Pope, who... He's got a desk who has already spent the better part of 2018 dealing with a spiraling child sex abuse, adult gay sex, and cover-up scandal in Chile that was so vast the entire bishop's conference offered to resign last month. uh, No, in May, as you know. And as on Friday, Francis accepted the resignation of the Honduran deputy, Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez Maradiaga, one of Francis's top advisors. The auxiliary bishop, Juan José Pineda Fasquelle, was accused of sexual misconduct with seminarians and with lavish spending on his lovers. And the spending was so obvious to Honduras' poverty-wracked faithful that Maradiaga is now under pressure to reveal what he knows of Pineda's misdeeds and why he tolerated a sexually active gay bishop in his ranks. That's where you want him. The McCarrick scandal poses the same questions. It was apparently an open secret in some U.S. church circles that, quote, Uncle Ted, unquote, invited seminarians to his beach house and into his bed. But there's the beach. While such an abuse of power may have been quietly tolerated for decades, it doesn't fly in the Me Too era, and there has been a deafening silence from McCarrick's brother cardinals but what they might have known and when. I'm betting they didn't know anything ever. Catholics in Buffalo, New York, are undergoing their Boston moment on sex abuse, according to the National Catholic Reporter. Michael Whalen held a press conference in February in which he accused retired priest Father Norbert Osolitz of abuse inflicted when Whalen, Michael Whalen, was a minor. Osolitz told a Buffalo News reporter that he, now 78, is guilty of dozens of such crimes, had undergone rehabilitation therapy in Canada, Canada, and then returned to the diocese as an active priest until being removed from ministry and forced to retire in 2003. This was as a result of a charter enacted by U.S. bishops in Dallas a year earlier, which prohibited ministry by any priest credibly accused of sex abuse. Orsley's story was news to Catholics in Buffalo, who were never told that the priest was an accused sex abuser or an abused sex accuser. The diocese was taken to task for a policy of not revealing the names of accused priests. Within weeks, Bishop Richard Malone, who came to the diocese in 2012, revealed the names of 42 accused clergy. In early June, Malone told the Buffalo News the diocese is being transparent, but um, not the garments. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now more, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, about President, <laughs> President Trump. Um, of course, the week began with um, a much ballyhooed and then in the event, much derided summit conference between President, <laughs> President Trump and Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, the press conference that followed the the one-on-one meeting, and, and that was followed in turn by a meeting of Trump and Putin with their advisors, then the press conference. Um, Anderson Cooper, a news anchor, ladies and gentlemen, 
came on right after the press conference was over, and his first words that he uttered on live TV were, this, you've just seen, the most disgraceful performance by an American president in living memory. Now, that's absolutely acceptable as opinion or commentary, but given the um, traditions, the protocols, the rules of the game of television news broadcasting, that's for an anchor, that's a firing offense. He's still on the job. Um, The Helsinki News Conference was followed by days of walkbacks and walkbacks of the walkback as uh, President Trump attempted to correct the record of what he had said at the news conference where he'd said um, his intelligence people had told him Russia had been meddling in the 2016 elections. President Putin had been very strong and persuasive in denying it. And um, he didn't see any reason why Russia would have been involved. And, of course, a day later, famously, a day or two later, he issued a correction saying he didn't mean would, he meant wouldn't. Now, I have to say, I came back and I said, what is going on? What's the big deal? So I got a transcript. I reviewed it. I actually went out and uh, reviewed a clip of uh, an answer that I gave. And I realized that there is a need for some clarification. It should have been obvious. I thought it would be obvious, but I would like to clarify just in case it wasn't. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't or why it wouldn't be Russia. Just to repeat it, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. And the sentence should have been, and I thought it would be maybe a little bit unclear on the transcript or unclear on the actual video. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. So you can put that in, and I think that probably clarifies things pretty good by itself. It should have been obvious. I thought it was obvious. It wasn't obvious enough. The media were oblivious to what should have been obvious. That when it comes to Russia, there's no one ever so tough. You're doing your kids no good. If instead of shouldn't, you said should They'll go out and get hurt You could lose your shirt You'll be sitting where you shoulda stood They'll think you're a babe in the woods If instead of couldn't You said could You'll get a great job 
but end up like a slot Slinking back to your old neighborhood And who needs that? Just one word, it can be so terrifically magical What they heard could be so horribly tragical You could make it all better by adding a letter Or maybe two It's not hard to be misunderstood If instead of wouldn't, you said would Just a quick explanation A nice clarification And you end up as free as a bird All thanks to just one word Now I can't afford the fancy rigs the CB's truckers own Yeah, all I got's a pregnant wife, three kids and a princess phone. But when I'm all alone and it's late at night and that evening rate goes down, I dial seven random numbers. I dial seven random numbers. Let them hear this friendly sound. Hello, world. This here's wrong number. And I'm calling just to tell you that I'm here. My potluck roll call Be your local boy or toll call Wrong numbers coming at you loud and clear Hello? Well, 73 is to you, good buddy This wrong number calling at you What's your 1020? Who is it? Yeah, it's wrong number You got any Smokies in your back door? You better watch the flip-flop I think you have the wrong number Yeah, well, that's the whole idea For the color of your skin I just call at two in the morning Cause I know that you'll be in And I ain't no heavy breather No kidnapper and no crank I dial seven random numbers Seven random numbers I dial seven random numbers And then my mind goes blank Hello world This here's wrong number Jaw with strangers near and far My princess rigs a honey But I'm saving up my money So as I can build a phone booth in my car Hello world This here's wrong number Hello world This here's wrong number Kind of equal time. And now... Our house is a very, very, very smart house. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the leading security camera maker has sent footage from inside a family's home to the wrong person's app. 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 
Swan Security has blamed a factory error for the data breach, which was brought to its attention by the BBC. Said it was a one-off incident. However, last month, according to the BBC, another customer reported a similar problem, saying his version of the same app had received footage from a pub's closed-circuit television system. Swan said it was attempting to recover the equipment involved in this second case. In the meantime, it had notified the UK's data, data privacy watchdog of both cases. Swan is owned by the Infonova Group, a U.S.-based security camera specialist with offices across the globe. Don't look for them, though. Some domestic abusers are using smart home devices to intimidate, harass, and watch, and listen to their victims. Lawyers are grappling with the issue as they seek to, to cover smart home technology in restraining orders. It's according to the New York Times. Its story is based on more than 30 interviews with victims, their lawyers, shelter workers, and emergency responders. The abusers use smartphone apps to control home doors, speakers, thermostats, lights, and cameras. According to the Times, one woman who runs a shelter says she's hearing reports of abusers turning up the thermostat to 100 degrees or blaring music through smart speakers. What do they think it is, Guantanamo? The abusers gain control by overseeing installation of the technology and keeping the passwords secret. Judges should be asked to include all smart home devices, even if they're unknown to victims, in restraining orders, according to advocates. Even if there is a restraining order, actions such as suddenly turning on a TV or the lights may not be a violation, according to a lawyer at a women's rights legal advocacy group. He says criminal laws may also prove inadequate to deal with harassment. An abuser, however, could be violating a state revenge porn law, by circulating intimate videos or photos taken by a security camera. It's all a good idea. <laughs> and a list offering guidance to those affected by smart home devices being used to control or harass them within abusive relationships has been published online, largely aimed at women. woman who runs a shelter for victims of domestic violence in the United States told the Times... Some were losing control of their own homes. What could be smarter? And now, ladies and gentlemen. So sorry. The white father of biracial YouTube stars, the McClure twins, is facing heavy criticism after racist and misogynistic posts on the family's Twitter account recently surfaced. Toddler twin sisters Ava and Alexis McCure have amassed millions of followers across social media thanks to their adorable pictures and videos. This is according to People.com. Their parents, Justin and Amy McClure, have also garnered their own following due to their many pictures, videos, and openness when discussing their biracial relationship. Justin is white, Amy is black. Justin, while using his own personal Twitter profile that would later become the family's account as they rose to internet stardom, had sent out, it turns out, multiple racist tweets that joked about black people and women. Black people can't say ask, he wrote in one of his now-deleted tweets, but they have no trouble saying Cadillac Escalade. It gets worse. 
After facing backlash, Justin and Amy discussed the tweets in a video published to the family's YouTube channel. In it, Amy said she was previously unaware of the tweets and was shocked when they came to light. Justin proclaimed he isn't racist, but said, you know, today he could see that his past tweets are offensive. I know I'm not a racist, he told his wife, but I look at the things I said and would a racist person say those things? They would. If what I say is so offensive to someone else and it's racist to them, then it's racist. He apologized, but explained, there's a punchline, ladies and gentlemen. He explained the posts were written when he was starting out as a comedian. Deadline Washington Milwaukee Brewers reliever Josh Hader, who pitched in the All-Star game, recently apologized later for racist and homophobic Twitter posts in 2011 that had surfaced during the game, during the ball game. It must have been a slow ball game. I was 17 years old, and as a child, I was immature, and obviously I said some things that were inexcusable, he told reporters in Washington. That doesn't reflect on who I am as a person today. All of 24 years old and a left-hander, he tweeted racist vulgarities several times in 2011. In his post-game apology, he made a vague reference to rap lyrics, but one forward tweet he wrote in 2011 was blunt, quote, I hate gay, keep, gay people. Quote, I'm deeply sorry for what I've said, Hater said this week, adding, I'm ready for any consequences that happened for what happened seven years ago. He's averaging almost 17 strikeouts for nine innings this season. Could face some kind of discipline for Major League Baseball. They might make him deal during the anthem. A Florida couple fined thousands of dollars for painting Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night under their home as a landmark for their autistic son have received an apology from the mayor. The local city council, which had said the mural violated city code, has also agreed to allow the artwork to stay and to pay the family $15,000. The couple said their artwork was to help their son find his way if he got lost. In July last year, the parents were told the painting, which spans the exterior of their home in Mount Dora, was in breach of the city's signage laws and could prove a distraction to motorists. The couple were later told to paint over the mural and would find $10,000. Miss Nemhauser, the wife of the family, said of their autistic son he would be able to at least mention the Van Gogh house and people would be able to help. On Tuesday of this week, the Mount Dora City Council unanimously agreed to waive the fine and to pay the family an agreed fee. And Mayor Nick Jerome, Nick Jerome, later publicly apologized to the couple at the city hall, adding his city has a long history of supporting artists. This is Orlando. It's near Orlando. The local artist Richard Baranechea, who was commissioned to paint the mural, said it was a big day for the arts and a big day for freedom. The house has since become a minor tourist attraction in the city, which is located about 25 miles northwest of Orlando. Well, that explains it, because there really aren't any distractions to motorists in Orlando. Deadline Greensboro, North Carolina. The North Carolina Department of Motor Vehicles has apologized after it denied a vanity tag because of its poor taste. Amy Bright had requested a license plate LSBNSNLV, which roughly equates to lesbians in love, wanting to express her love of her wife. The Department of Motor Vehicles Commissioner Tori Jessup has since approved the application after a local TV news station shared Bright's story. 
Jessup said he also apologized to Bright for the situation. And the uh, DMV issued a statement saying that the commissioner has approved the application, saying it was a mistake to have rejected it in the first place. He's left a voice message for Ms. Bright to apologize for the situation and to let her know about the approval. Bright was upset because she said her requested plate didn't involve curse words or hate speech. She had a similar license plate all the way back in 2007. The DMV has a team of reviewers that work under the special plate manager. It's up to their discretion whether or not a specialty plate is issued. They should probably outsource that to Facebook. They're doing so well with evaluating the the acceptability of verbiage. Dateline Chicago CVS Health says two Chicago drugstore employees were out of their jobs just days after a black customer complained that white managers called police after accusing her of trying to use a phony coupon. The company says the two staffers involved are no longer employed. CVS apologized. Hudson says it. Uh, Hudson, this is um, Camilla, Camilla Hudson, and says it doesn't tolerate discrimination against customers. They want them all. That's why they're buying every other drug. No. An employee with a Harvard University-affiliated research center has issued an apology after she was captured on video asking a neighbor and the woman's biracial daughter if they lived in affordable apartments. Teresa Lund, executive director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, told the Boston Globe she's terribly sorry and her comments were inappropriate and wrong. Cambridge resident Alison Laliberte says in a Facebook post Lund had confronted her last week saying her daughter was being too loud. Laliberte says Lund asked her apartment number and she refused to say Lund asked if she lived in the affordable units. Lund says there was no reason for me to ask what type of unit she lives in. Oh, I think there was. Tesla CEO Elon Musk apologized this week for calling one of the cavers crucial to the rescue of the Thai boys soccer team a pedo, accepting that the tweet to his 22.3 million followers was unjustified. He took full responsibility for his maligning of British cave expert Vernon Unsworth after noting that he leveled the baseless public allegation of pedophilia in anger after Mr. Unsworth said several untruths and suggested I engage in a sexual act with the mini-sub, i.e. showing up where it would be painful. Unsworth, whose extensive knowledge of the layout of the cave in northern Thailand proved crucial to the operation which saved a dozen young soccer players and their assistant coach, accused Musk and SpaceX engineers of orchestrating a PR stunt by sending a small sub to help the rescue divers. I apologize to Mr. Unsworth and to the companies I represent as leader. The fault is mine and mine alone, Musk said about his tweets, in which he first called Unsworth the pedo and then doubled down on the claim, tweeting from his official account, Betcha a signed dollar it's true. Where's that dollar? Deadline Washington. A face, this is the Facebook apology of the week, ladies and gentlemen. We wait, wait all week for this. A Facebook official publicly apologized to the right-wing Donald Trump-supporting online personalities Diamond and Silk during a congressional hearing this week, despite the duo misrepresenting the facts of their dispute earlier this year. Facebook Vice President for Global Policy Management, Monica Bickert, mentioned an earlier hearing this year in which Diamond and Silk testified in front of the same committee. Quote, we understand their frustrations over some past communications with our team. We recognize we badly mishandled their concerns. We apologize to them at the time, and I'd like to extend my own personal apology to them today. And 
publisher of the East Bay Express, weekly newspaper in um, San Francisco area, Bay Area, apologized after resigning. He admitting to indiscretion, saying his presence had become a threat to the mission of healthy independent journalism. Stephen Buell stepped down one day after posting a lengthy apology and pledge on the newspaper's website in which he admitted that he used derogatory words while discussing a story he had unilaterally removed from the newspaper website that described white people singing along to live hip-hop songs that contain the N-word. And director James Gunn has been fired from the upcoming movie sequel Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 after old tweets containing offensive jokes about pedophilia and rape were unearthed by far-right activists. Disney confirmed his firing, and Gunn apologized for the tweets in a Twitter thread and shuttered his personal website. But uh, he was fired the next day. Many people who follow my career know when I started, I viewed myself as a provocateur, making movies and telling jokes that were outrageous and taboo. If I discuss, as I've discussed re- publicly many times, as I've developed as a person, so has my work and my humor, he tweeted. That's the completely honest truth. I used to make a lot of offensive jokes. I don't anymore. I don't ba- blame my past self for this, but I like myself more and feel like a more full human being and creator today. Love to you all. Unquote James Gunn. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. gentlemen that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show the program returns next week on your audio device of choice whenever it presents the program to you and you take advantage of that presentation to actually listen to it that took too long to say didn't it and it'll be just like not taking that long to say next time if you agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, not in exile in Hawaii desks for help with today's program. Thanks to Pam Halstead and to uh, Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. Email address for this program. Playlist of the music heard here on your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Really in time for Labor Day, really. All at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter. Unlike Maggie Haberman, I'm still on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Sensory of Progress Productions and 
originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. It would return next week. No, it wouldn't. It would. It wouldn't. It would. So long from Santa Monica. <laughs>